Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Now when they draw near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Turn to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for who you are. Lord, we thank you that you're here with us today. We ask that you would bless this time as we look at your word, that we might understand and know you better. In Christ's name, amen. It is good to be with you this morning. It's good to have this opportunity Uh, And it's good to be with you celebrating Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry of Jesus as he came into Jerusalem on the last week of his life, the week before the crucifixion. Now, many of us are very familiar with this passage. We've heard this story. We've already read a couple different accounts this morning. And so I want to be careful that we don't just get into a sort of cruise control See, my hope for us this morning is that we can look at this passage with with fresh eyes. Maybe we learn something new, or maybe we just remember something that we've heard time and time again. But as we confront our, our Savior, Jesus Christ, in his entry, I'd ask you to look at this with fresh eyes. See, this event was a pivotal moment, and it teaches us a great deal about our Lord and Savior. We see Jesus' identity on display, as well as his purpose and his mission. Now, one of the things to remember as we come to a passage, we we haven't been studying Mark together, and so we want to keep this in its proper context. Mark included this event in his gospel for a reason. And so if you'll you'll give me a few minutes to, to kind of build this context to see where Mark is going Uh, We can see why Mark wrote this letter or this gospel in the first place. Way back in the first verse of the first chapter, Mark said that this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we see Mark fleshing this idea out that this is Jesus, that this is the Son of God who is coming to bring good news to his people. We need to look at him. We need to focus on him and see what he's doing. See what he's teaching. As you flip through the early chapters of the book of Mark, you see that Jesus is establishing his authority over all things. We see that he has power over the demons as he casts out evil spirits. We see that he has authority over disease and infirmities as he 
heals the man with the shriveled hand, the man with leprosy. We see him healing the sick and the blind and the paralyzed. We see his power and authority over nature as he calms the sea with his words. You remember he was sleeping in the boat and his disciples woke him up in fear. He said, peace, be still. And everything was still, that he has authority over nature. We see even more that he has authority over the dead as he raised Jairus' daughter from the grave. You see, the first half of the book of Mark is all pointing us to to our Savior, to, to Jesus, the Son of God, who has come and has all authority. And then something really interesting happens in chapter 8. There's a change that takes place. Jesus has been teaching, and he, he turns to his disciples, and he says, who do people say that I am? Some say the prophets. Some say Elijah. Some say John the Baptist. And he point blank asks them, but who do you say that I am? What's my identity? And Peter says, you are the Christ. This is a huge moment. This is a huge moment. Uh, the, the word Christ in Greek is the same uh, Hebrew word Messiah. The anointed one, the one coming from God to save his people. Someone God was going to send. That the Jewish people were looking for this Messiah. They were looking for this Christ. Wondering when God would send them. And here's Peter saying, you're the one. You're the Messiah. You're the one that God sent to save us from our sin. And immediately in the book of Mark, we see a change in Jesus. And he starts to to, to talk to his disciples. And he he starts this running theme of telling them that I am going to Jerusalem to be crucified. I'm going there to be condemned. He tells them this in in chapter 8. He tells them this again in chapter 9. And then he tells them this again in chapter 10. Listen to what he says. See, we are going to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock on him. And spit on him. And flog him. And kill him. And after three days he will rise. Doesn't get much more explicit than that. Jesus is on a mission. He has a purpose in Jerusalem. And the disciples understood in a way that he was the Christ. That he was the Messiah King. Come to save his people. But they didn't really get it. Not yet. When Jesus told them that the Son of Man came to serve, not be served, and to give his life as a ransom for many, they still didn't really understand how that fit with Jesus. And this is where we are when we come to our passage in chapter 11, this triumphal entry. And so as they come to Jerusalem... And it's time to go in the city. Uh, I'd like to break our text into kind of three parts, uh, three hangers, if you will. One, I want to understand that this is a premeditated event, that this is something Jesus planned for. We want to look at it and see that this is an audacious procession. And then thirdly, we want to deal with the quiet, the quiet ending that we see. So first, let's look at this premeditated event. We can see that the triumphal entry was not spontaneous. It didn't happen out of nowhere. I mean, you could look at the crowds and you could say maybe maybe that sort of happened out of nowhere. But so this was orchestrated by Jesus. I mean, here we have Jesus and his 12 disciples. And then there's this whole crowd that's coming with Jesus into Jerusalem. They're coming here to celebrate the Passover. This is a big feast. 
Jews came from everywhere. So it wouldn't be strange to have everyone coming into town like this. And as they, they get there, they've, they've made this long trip. They stop short. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm ever on a long road trip, I don't stop at the edge of the town that I'm trying to get to. No, I want to I just go. I just want to make it to Grandma's house. I just want to make it to the hotel. I just want to get there. But Jesus doesn't do that. No, he stops. Look at verse 2. He sends two of his disciples into one of the small villages. Probably Bethphage. Could be Bethany. And he sends them to go get a donkey. Now, what's this all about? It's not like Jesus is too tired to walk the rest of the way. It's not like he just needed a ride because he was too tired. No, we, we understand that everything that Jesus is doing here, everything that he says, is pointing to the fact that he is the Messiah. So let's talk about the donkey. Uh, recently, we went through Zechariah as a church. And we, we read in the Matthew account that all the, the disciples, all of the gospel writers, see this donkey as the fulfillment of the prophecy in Zechariah 9 9, where we, where we hear, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Is there anything I should be doing differently? Or just keep going? Keep going. Okay. Um, okay, I'm going to back up. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So here's a picture of this Messiah king coming into town on a donkey. Now, if he was going out in time of war, he would be going out on a great war steed. But no, he comes in on a donkey, which is a picture of peace, that this, com- this king is coming in peace. Now, the other night, we were looking at this in youth group, and, and we had a great question. One of the kids said, uh, so were they, like, looking, and, and, and every time somebody came into town on a donkey, they were like, well, is that the Messiah or what? Uh, no, 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 no. This was pretty common. People rode on donkeys. Uh, Jesus did a lot more, that there was more than just riding on a donkey. And we'll, we'll look at just a few of those things in the text here. So first, we see what kind of donkey Jesus wants. He tells them, go find one on which no one has ever sat. The commentators are quick to point out that there is Old Testament precedent here. That God often asks for unblemished, pure, unridden beasts to accomplish his purposes. And so when Jesus asks for one that's never been ridden before, uh, they, they point to texts like Numbers 19 or Deuteronomy 21. Or 1 Samuel 6, 7. And the disciples would understand that there's something special here. There's something different that's going on here. Another interesting prophecy is uh, that this donkey is tied up. I mean, do you, did you notice how many times the word tied and untied is in our text? Look at verse 2. Jesus tells them, go into the village in front of you. And immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. Verse 4. And they went away and they found a colt tied to the door outside the street. And they untied it. And some standing nearby said, what are you doing untying this colt? I mean, five times. They're talking about this colt that's tied. Why the repetition? Well, again, commentators will point us back to Genesis chapter 49. Remember, Joseph has saved the world from famine. And he's brought his, his family to Egypt to live with him. And Jacob, the patriarch, he's, he's old. 
and he's dying, and he goes to bless his 12 children. And he speaks prophetically over his children. And then when he comes to Judah, of whom King David would come, of whom Christ would come. So he's talking to the line of Judah, Christ's family. He says this, The scepter should not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine, and the donkey's colt to the choice vine. So we, so we have this messianic expectation uh, in, in Genesis. I mean, from the very beginning, that of the line of Judah, someone will come. Uh, and it's talking about the tying of this donkey. No wonder Mark highlights it. Another way that Jesus shows that he knows who he is, he knows he's the Messiah, is from where he's coming from. Uh, in verse 1, he's coming from the Mount of Olives. Again, going back to Zechariah chapter 14, we hear that on the day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lie in Jerusalem on the east. And so the Jewish rabbis understood this to be another prophecy pointing to the Messiah. When the Messiah comes, look to the Mount of Olives. He's coming from the Mount of Olives. See, Jesus knew who he was. And he prepared everything, making it clear that he knew his identity that he is the one that the people have been waiting for. He's the Messiah come to save his people. See, everything is, is just right for this audacious procession, which is our second point. See, up until this time in Jesus' ministry, you'll remember that he is, he's kept the crowds quiet, or he's tried. When, when he's healed the, the, the blind or the, the people, he's told them, don't tell. Don't go out and tell people who I am. Remember what he says to the demons. He gets, commands them to be quiet because he doesn't want anyone to know. He keeps saying that this is because his time has not yet come. That Jesus was waiting. But here at the triumphal entry, we see something very different. He doesn't command people to be quiet. He doesn't tell them to be quiet about his identity. No, he encourages it. Look at some of the things that these people do for him. Starting in verse 7. We see that after the disciples went and, and got the donkey, they put their cloaks on the back of a don the donkey, creating this uh, saddle on this unridden donkey. The rest of the disciples and the crowds begin to throw their cloaks down on the ground. It's like this, this carpet before him. It's kind of like a, a red carpet entrance for Jesus. Now, this, too, had precedent in the Old Testament. That this is, this is how they treated kings. Like when King Jehu became king, his followers took their cloaks off and set them down on the ground so that he could walk into town or come into town on their jackets. Now, one of the highlights, it reminds me of a song. One of the highlights of my week is when I drive into youth group, I pick up a few, few unnamed gentlemen on the way and they are so kind. Uh, they have been teaching me all kinds of things, like I'm old and not cool. And there are lots and lots of words that I am not allowed to use, which I know I'm actually then supposed to use them. But to repay them for their kindness, one of the things as discipleship and education, I need to teach them proper music appreciation. And I have two specific genres I'm sure most of you can relate with. Um, one music genre that I really enjoy is solid, reformed, theologically rich Christian rap. Beautiful. They, they say it's an acquired taste, and they haven't acquired it yet, but they'll get it. 
Uh, the other is I, I love late 90s, early 1000s Christian ska music. They also say that that's an acquired taste. I don't know. It's, it's wonderful. But there's a song uh, that I used to woo my wife, which didn't. Anyway, there were other reasons. Um, but there's a song about a boy, and he's, he's singing about this girl, and he's just Twitter-pated. And he said, ugly day. You know, the sun is shining. Every cloud's got a silver lining. Every day, the skies are blue, and every day is ugly without you. Beautiful. Poetic. Twitter-pated. He goes on, and one of the lines is, he just loves this girl so much that he wishes he could lie down on the street to keep the dust up off her feet. I don't, I don't know why she doesn't love this song, but it's just it's beautiful. But I always think of this when I think of people like laying down their cloaks, laying down their jackets, laying down these cloaks, so that when Jesus comes into town, the dust won't even get on his feet. That it's better for their, their cloaks to be ground down into the gravel than for Jesus to get his feet dirty. Beautiful. But not, not only this, in verse 8, we see that they do more. We see that they go out and they get these, these leafy branches. The Gospel of Mark tells us that these are palm branches that they're grabbing. And they're cutting them down and they're, they're running into town with them. And this too was a precedent. That this is what people would do for conquerors and warriors. They would come with these leafy branches and they would wave them like flags. And then they would throw them down so that you could walk on them. I mean... If you could think about maybe like a sporting event where they hand out towels. And everyone in the stand is just standing up and waving that towel as they cheer on their team. Maybe a home run hanky or a homer hanky for you Twins fans. And you look up into the stand and it's this picture of joy and celebration. That this is a party as people are cheering on their heroes, cheering on the conquerors. And then they throw it down so that Jesus has this this path. This carpet of cloaks and and leaves on the ground before him. I mean, what a scene. And notice what they're chanting. Notice what they're singing. They're crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Where did they get this? What is this? This is Psalm 118. I mean, remember, the Psalms were the songbooks for the people of Israel. They're the worship songs that they would sing. And there's this whole group of psalms uh, called the Hallel Psalms or the Hallelujah Psalms that these, these people would, as they're coming to Jerusalem for these feasts, they would sing these together. And so they're, they're coming in and they're singing these pilgrim songs on the way, praising God. And it's really cool, too, because... Uh, there's, there's a liturgical aspect that is, it's antiphonal. That like one group would be crying out, Hosanna. And then another group would be going, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then the, the other group, Hosanna. And then glory in the highest. I mean, imagine this. Imagine this scene with me. As Jesus comes into town, he's riding on his donkey. His disciples surround him. The roads, uh, as far as the eye, they're stretched out with people who are waving these branches and throwing them down and throwing these cloaks on the ground and they're singing out these praises. But what makes this truly outrageous for the Pharisees is what these people are crying out. See, the word Hosanna, it's a transliteration and it means God save us. These people are praying. They're asking for a Savior. That's what Psalm 118 is all about. Psalm 118, verse 25 says, 
Save us, we pray, O Lord. Hosanna. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And what's amazing is that this psalm is a messianic psalm. It's one in which they're looking to the Lord to give them a Savior, a Redeemer, a Messiah. And here the crowd is applying this to Jesus. That He's the one. He's the Messiah. He's come to save us. This is the praise that Jesus should have received in His entire ministry. Like when Jesus was walking around, this is how people should have regularly been treating Him. As the God of the universe. But people didn't always see. People didn't understand. And as people tend to do, they forgot. I mean, even even this crowd, in this riotous scene, like, where are they by the end of our, our section? Look with me at verse 11. Verse 11 says, And he entered Jerusalem, he went into the temple, and when he looked around at everything as it was already late, He went out to Bethany with the twelve. What? What happened to the crowd? What happened to the excitement and the anticipation? What happened to everybody? I mean, it's, it's like we see here. Jesus is just standing alone in the temple. And it's and it's late and there's nothing going on. And so he says to his disciples, all right, well, let's let's go back to Bethany. And they spent the night in Bethany. Why does Mark record this? Why is this important to this passage? Why does Mark tell us that this is a quiet place? Well, John in his gospel, he tells us that so much happened this day that the disciples didn't even understand. They didn't know until Jesus was glorified. But this moment must have stuck out. Stuck out to the disciples as they they stand in the temple with Jesus alone and it's quiet and it's dark. And he's standing there and he's looking around. It's like they they knew that this was important, but at the time they didn't know why. Have you ever had moments like that where you're caught up in a moment and you know it's really, really important, but you don't necessarily understand what it's all about? I I think of a time when I was 10-year-old and I was driving to a wedding uh, with my mom and my great-grandfather. And we were going through uh, southern Michigan. It was October, and all the leaves were changing. It was, it was beautiful, uh, red and yellow and green. I mean, just this, everything you want to see in the changing colors of the leaves. Uh, but I was reading a book, and at a rest stop, my mom told me, you need to put the book down, and you need to watch your great-grandpa, and you need to see, and you need to look into his eyes, and you need to see what he sees. And so I did, and I put the book down, and I, I remember sitting there in the back of the Buick LeSabre and watching my grandpa, and he's here in his eye, and he's looking out into the woods, and I didn't know why it was so important, but I knew it was an important moment. And as I've reflected upon just looking at my grandpa, I learned more about his love for nature, more about that he's a man of the woods and that his his heart was longing to be free. I learned more about his love of life and family in that one moment just by paying attention. My 10-year-old self couldn't have told you that. I didn't understand it at the time, but I knew it was an important moment. And I think that this is what the disciples have for them right now. They didn't understand what was going on. Why is Jesus alone in the temple just looking around? But they're quiet and they're just watching and they're paying attention. And as the years passed and as things became more evident to them, I, I think they would have thought two things. First, 
they would realize that Jesus was looking around in the temple and probably thinking about the next couple days that lay in front of him. You see, the triumphal entry was the beginning of the end. And that Jesus was going to war with the religious leaders. And he was taking them head on. That Jesus' time hadn't come, but now his time had come. And and he was doing things and he was declaring who he was. And he was forcing the religious leaders' hands. Putting them on his schedule. Remember, he came to Jerusalem to be crucified. That was his purpose. He knew that. He was getting them on the same page. See, the triumphal entry wasn't about him grabbing a quick moment in the spotlight, although we can see his glory and we can uh, praise him for that. That's not what it was all about. No, it was, it was him convincing the religious leaders that now is the time. It's time to get rid of him. And over the next week, he would do this, particularly placing himself in the context of the temple. We see in 11.15 that he entered the temple and began to drive out the money changers. In 11.27, they came again to Jerusalem and he was walking in the temple. 12.35, Jesus taught in the temple. 12.41, he sat down opposite the treasury of the temple. 13.1, and he came out to the temple. 13.3, he sat at the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. And so as the disciples looked back, they would realize like this whole week Jesus is going to spend in the temple debating with the religious leaders, talking to the religious leaders. And he's thinking about his week, and he's planning his week. But secondly, the disciples, as they reflected back on this moment of Jesus in the temple, they would probably remember the words that Jesus had said to them in John chapter 2, where he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise up, or I will raise it up. And the Jews said to him, look, It's taken us 46 years to build the temple, and will you raise it in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. See, for the Jews, the temple was a place of worship. It was a place that they would bring their sacrifices and find forgiveness for their sins. It was a place where God's presence was known among his people. But by the end of the week, In Jesus' body, this physical temple would become irrelevant. See, the true temple had come in Jesus' body. That Friday, His body would be torn down on the cross. And Easter Sunday, it would be raised up again forever. We as Christians, we don't go to the temple to worship anymore. We worship in spirit and truth through Christ. We don't go to the temple to to offer sacrifices for the gift forgiveness of our sin. But we have forgiveness through the sacrifice of Jesus as he bled and died on the cross. We understand God's presence among his people, not in a physical building like the temple, but in his coming and dwelling among us and then sending his Holy Spirit to us. Through Christ, we have been adopted. We have been reconciled back to God. We have forgiveness. We've been brought into his family and been fully justified that everything we have comes through Christ, the true temple. So as Jesus stood there at the end of this emotional, somewhat bizarre day, his disciples observed as he took a quiet moment looking around. He was, this was the calm 
before a storm that had been brewing since Eden. And that was about to come crashing down upon him. So as we contemplate Palm Sunday, let's be reminded of a few things. First, let's be reminded of Jesus' identity, that he is the Messiah. That he is the one sent, the Christ, from God to save his people from their sins. He's not simply a nice guy, a good prophet, or a moral teacher. No, he himself claimed that he was the Messiah. And he calls his people to look at him as such. That he's a mighty Savior. One that can forgive us any sin. That he came to bring good news to the poor. To set captives free. To open the eyes of the blind and give liberty to the oppressed. This is who Jesus is. Secondly, let's remember his mission and his purpose. And when Jesus rode into town on the red carpet of cloaks and palm branches, it wasn't the triumph of an earthly kingdom or a political ruler. No, this was a road paved to the cursed cross on which our Savior died. The Palm Sunday is, is in a sense a triumph, but it's really in the shadow of the tragedy of the cross. And yet, on that cross, Christ conquered for us by becoming sin for us. See, the triumphal entry was the road that he traveled to get there. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.